Welcome to the Stunt Show, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Good Thursday afternoon. My name is Mayor Fertig, and this is the Stunt Show, heard every Thursday at 1 on the Nahum Siegel Network, nahumsegel.com, on the live stream. And I certainly appreciate your spending part of your day with us. We have a very, very interesting show coming up today. We are going to talk about a wide variety of topics in just a short hour. First, we're going to speak with uh, somebody who is at the forefront of efforts to uh, raise awareness of uh, the situation in which Jonathan Pollard still finds himself. Uh, after that, we'll speak to uh, somebody who uh, hosted a very, very unusual, not unprecedented, but unusual meeting of uh, members of the so-called off-the-derech community and a group of, uh, of uh, well-known, in some cases, Rabbanim. And then we'll talk for a few minutes about a cappella music, just in time for uh, the middle of Sphira. And uh, all that coming up in the next hour here on The Stunt Show. And again, thank you for tuning in. Our first guest, let's not waste any time, is uh, David Stahl. Once upon a time, David was the Assistant National Coordinator of the Student Struggle for Soviet Jewry. If you're about my age, a little older, maybe a little younger, you're certainly familiar with the Triple SJ. If you've never heard of it, then I strongly suggest you open another box on your browser and do a little bit of research. Look up Student Struggle for Soviet Jewry. It was a big deal. David is today an English teacher in the state of Israel at the high school and college level, and uh, as well as, uh, as I said, involved in the Pollard effort. And welcome to the Stunt Show, David. Thank you. It's good to be here. I appreciate your time. I know uh, that uh, as we're speaking, it's uh, not exactly early in Israel on uh, this Thursday afternoon here, Thursday evening in the Middle East. David, uh, do you have any formal title uh, in 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 regard to your work uh, concerning Jonathan Pollard? Just to, in a, you know, in short, just tell me how that works, and then let's talk about Jonathan. Okay, uh, my colleague. I am Moshe Tester and myself are involved in grassroots efforts on behalf of Jonathan Pollard. Right. We, we work with the official Pollard co- co- committee, but on the other hand, we feel that uh, we want to remain independent in the sense that we want people to be aroused to make efforts on behalf of Jonathan Pollard's release, to educate people, to educate students, to educate the wider public here in Israel and to do so in a way that we can say that our efforts will have a positive effect on securing his release. Okay, fair enough. Have you ever met him? Have you ever met his wife? We've met his wife. We've met Esther Pollard. We've been in meetings with her. Mm -hmm. Uh, I haven't met Jonathan Pollard. I do hope, says Rath Hashem, that at any moment and any day, because of the efforts on his behalf, that we can make here in Israel and American Jews can make in the United States, that he will be here speedily in the next period of time that we can we can hold his hand and, and greet him and say, welcome, brother. It's time you came home. Sounds like a nice idea. Um, just in case uh, we have somebody out in our audience who is not familiar uh, with the case, I would imagine that most people listening have heard of Jonathan Pollard. Uh, some people may or may not, you know, have uh, more than a passing familiarity with with why he's been in federal prison for how many years now? He's in his 29th year of arrest, and uh, if you want to ask more, I'll be happy to answer. Well, uh, just just to state uh, the basics, Jonathan Pollard was a naval analyst, uh, the U.S. naval analyst, who uh, was convicted of espionage. Uh, on uh, behalf for passing U.S. secrets to the state of Israel. Plain and simple, he was a spy for Israel. 
Um, the uh, is that how you is that a fair uh, description from your perspective? I mean, if you were meeting somebody who'd never heard of the man, uh, how would you explain it? I would explain it somewhat in that way, but a little bit differently. And I don't want to get too technical because I would like for our conversation to to be steered into how efforts can be made to help this man. Fair because, enough. But I will just say the following. Uh, you, you are absolutely correct. Jonathan Pollard worked as a naval analyst. He did, he did uh, get information in his position uh, of, being, of having access to classified information. But all the reports that have come out that have been declassified Right. Uh, as to the damage control reports in the last year or two have clearly stated that Mr. Pollard only gave information to Israel concerning Israel's enemies in the Middle East. Nothing of the information that he secured or transferred to Israel had anything to do to compromise American security. Right. And unfortunately, unfortunately, both at his trial in secret documents that were presented by former Secretary of Defense Weinberger, and throughout the period of his incarceration, there have been rumors and misleading statements made by the American government and the intelligence community that want to say, want to give the impression that Jonathan Pollard is responsible for a breach in America's security. I want to... Reiterate that is not the case. Okay. And not according to David Stahl and Chaim Osha Tesler, right. but according to the released information of damage control by the CIA. Right. Okay, my guest is David Stahl, who is one of the leaders with Chaim Osha Tesler and others of a grassroots effort to uh, secure the eventual release of Jonathan Pollard from federal prison in the United States, uh, where he is serving uh, now in his 29th year of incarceration. Let's let's just state for uh, you know sort of the record or just let's just stipulate that no nobody disagrees that there was some espionage involved. I, I don't uh, let's stipulate for for the purposes of this conversation that there's nobody involved in this conversation who doesn't agree that uh, that he deserved to go to jail. Uh, the question from my perspective is. Um, has he served long enough? Has he served far longer than anybody else who has committed a similar crime? And given his ill health uh, that's been reported, is it well past time that he ought to be released, if nothing else, on humanitarian grounds? Is that fair? I think it's fair to state. I just want to uh, tell your uh, listeners mm-hmm. that as we speak now, Jonathan Pollard is has served 10,402 days in prison. Wow. Uh, that's, as I said before, he's in his 29th year of imprisonment under very difficult conditions, uh, solitary confinement. Um, this past year alone, he's been in the hospital. Uh, he was hospitalized more than once in the past few years, and his condition and health are very, very poor. But to come back to what you said, what about other people who have committed similar offenses? Uh, the average, the average length of sentence for such offenses, meaning people who have passed information, and I'm being a little bit more liberal than you are spying or espionage, not because only to protect or help our fellow Jew, Jonathan Pollard, but because of the actual charges against him. They were passing information to a friendly ally, 
Right. Now, there's a big difference between passing information to the former Soviet Union or other enemies of the United States and passing information to an ally. By the way, some of that information that Jonathan passed on to uh, to Israel was information that should have been passed on by agreements that America and Israel had signed. They weren't passed on. And what led Jonathan Pollard to do this act, and he admitted clearly in court and in other ways that he had done something wrong and was prepared to, to be, pay a penalty for it. But uh, to do so, to do so, uh, he had passed on information that was supposed to have been sent to Israel by America and wasn't passed on to him, to Israel. So in this sense, there was a motivating factor. Uh, but as I said before, the length of his sentence is outrageous. Um, I was, I just want to refer to an article that was written as, uh, uh, just recently on April 1st, 2014 this year by Dennis Ross in Time magazine. Right. Dennis Ross was, uh, of course, uh, known to the American Jewish community for his uh, efforts at uh, trying to uh, reach settlements between uh, Israel and the Arab countries. Uh, he was an advisor to President Clinton. Uh, and he wrote in this article, I heard the intelligence, this is a quote, I heard the intelligence community make arguments for holding him that make little sense. Perhaps five or even ten years after his imprisonment, he might still know things about our intelligence that could have some value. But nearly 30 years afterwards, what could still be of relevance? And here's to your point about other uh, crimes committed that are similar. It right. surely makes little sense to say that someone who has spent nearly 30 years in jail has not paid a severe price. Right. And uh, the, the amazing thing about this case is yeah. that almost yeah. everyone, almost all the government, U.S. government officials who were somewhat involved in this case and some had some role in it, at the time of Mr. Pollard's arrest and his sentencing, have come around and said, this is too much. He is serving much too severe a sentence. And uh, just one more uh, person who, who uh, amazingly, would, we, we wouldn't even think that he would go on record as speaking, but the a non-Jew, an American non-Jew, the former CIA director, right. James Woolsey, mm -hmm. um, said there is, ab quote, there is absolutely no reason for Pollard to be in prison for as long as Ames and Hansen, who were right. super spies uh, mm -hmm. on, from inside the CIA, and substantially longer than spies from other friendly, allied, and neutral countries. Right. Most hung up for some reason on the fact that he's an American Jew. Pretend he's a Greek or Korean or Filipino American and free him. Okay, that David. David, let, David let me let me let me stop you there. Let me ask you. Uh, let me just point out to our audience that uh, Pollard was in the news in a big way within the last couple of weeks because his name surfaced as essentially. Let's call it call it what it was. His name surfaced essentially as a pawn in the Middle East peace process, and when he was dangled as bait by the White House uh, to uh, convince um, to convince Israel to go ahead with round three of a release of prisoners uh, who had committed uh, murders and terrorist acts 
um, and and to release that as the third uh, third agreed upon release as part of the uh, at the moment at that time very much faltering uh, round of Mideast East peace talks. Um, ultimately, he was not freed. Ultimately, the talks collapsed. Um, but uh, it, it somehow became clear that he he has now entered uh, a new status almost as as a pawn in that process. Anything to say about that? Mayor, I want to say first and foremost that your analysis is absolutely on target. And uh, we here in the activist community feel that America, the United States, President Obama, and Secretary Kerry have revealed the cards that they're holding in their hand, mainly that the canner, the lie that has been propagated over the years, that Pollard cannot be released because of the severity of his crime, right. because he has uh, harmed American interests, because he has led to the death of American agents in Russia. You name it, whatever happened mm-hmm. in the American intelligence community that could have gone wrong has right. been put at Pollard's foot. And now, by saying, we are prepared to release him, but you, Israel, and you, Palestinians, must come to an agreement and will sweeten the pot by releasing him. I think your uh, analysis and labeling this as as uh, Mr. Pollard being held as a pawn uh, is absolutely correct. And I think this is the opportunity for us in Israel and for Jews in America to write, call, phone, go on the Internet, Facebook, wherever you can, write to congressmen, write to senators, contact them and say, this is long enough. And now that we know that Pollard is a candidate for being released, even by the highest echelon of the American government, we know that he's no longer a threat. He wasn't a threat to begin with. Right. So let him be released independently of whatever happens in peace negotiations, not to be held as a pawn or as a trump card, and unfortunately that has been the case until now. Right. My guest is David Stahl, who is one of the leaders of a grassroots effort to aid in the release or secure the release of Jonathan Pollard from federal prison in the U.S. You're listening to The Stunt Show. My name is Mayor Furtick. You're on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I thank you for tuning in. Stunt Show for Thursday, May 15th, the 15th of ER. And uh, last question, David, because we're running out of time. Uh, there was there was a lot of talk about the fact – I don't know if it's a fact, but there was a lot of talk about the suggestion that whether or not Pollard gets out – Right now, this is, you know, from a couple of weeks ago, he's going to get out soon because he's about to hit the 30-year mark, and that's when they're going to release him, right? Is that true? No way. I'm sorry to say. Uh, this is a misconception. I don't know where the information was or misinformation was gathered from, but I'll tell you that my colleague here, Hayam Moshe Tesler, has been in touch over the years and recently with one of Mr. Pollard's main attorneys in, in New York by the name of Jack Simmelman, who is a very serious attorney and who has told us the following. Mm-hmm. Before the 30-year period, before Mr. Pollard enters his 30-year period, which we hope he doesn't have to, as Rav Hashem, if we all do the right thing, but before that, the parole board doesn't have to give any reason as to denying him parole. No reason whatsoever. It doesn't have to answer in any way to those requests. That's until the 30-year mark. 
until mm-hmm. the 30-year mark. After the 30-year mark, the difference becomes they must they must give an explanation for why they don't want him to be released. But there's in no way any obligation on them, even after the 30 years, to release him. So all of these target dates that are being set up, I think, are there to confuse us and to say, you know what? We can rest easily. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to take any action. We don't have to go and write, protest, do what's necessary. Because this issue is not only an issue of Jewish concern. I think it's an issue of American justice and a miscarriage of American justice. So I don't think this is only a Jewish issue. I think that people of goodwill, people of all kinds and stripes and colors in America who feel and who know and have studied this case can say without any doubt that by coming up and speaking out on behalf of Pollard, then the constitutional right of an individual which has been abrogated can be restored and can give flying colors to the American judicial system, if it is so. Thank you very much, David Stahl. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your your spending uh, a couple of minutes with us here on The Stunt Show. Thank you very much, Mayor. That was David Stahl on The Stunt Show. If you'd like to reach him or Chaim Moshe Tesler to discuss their efforts on behalf of Jonathan Pollard, you can email them. David Stahl's email is D-U-V-I-D, Dovid, D-U-V-I-D, Stahl, S-T-A-H-L, at gmail.com. That's D-U-V-I-D-S-T-A-H-L at gmail.com. You're listening to The Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Good Thursday, everybody. I'm Mayor Fertig, and uh, The Stunt Show is heard every Thursday at this time, 1 o'clock Eastern specifically, on NachumSiegel.com. And uh, thank you for spending some time with us this afternoon, uh, and hope you're enjoying everything you're hearing on the live stream. Our next guest is a very, very interesting and intriguing writer, blogger, as well as the rabbi of a very unusual shul. Rabbi Eliyahu Fink is the rabbi of the Shul on the Beach in Venice, California. He's also a well-known and widely read blogger. He blogs at finkorswim.com, finkorswim.com. Rabbi Eliyahu Fink, welcome to The Stunt Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate that you're spending some time. I mean, I know it's, uh, I know it's uh, always tough to find a little time to get away in the middle of a busy day, but... Uh, I'm glad that you did. Um, you hosted a very interesting meeting in Muncie, where I believe you're originally from, this past Sunday. Could you tell us about it? Sure. Um, where do I begin? The meeting was, I'll just describe exactly what it was. It was a meeting between five prominent members of the Orthodox Jewish community, mostly the Shiva-style Orthodox Jewish community, which right. means that we didn't want to have people that were some from such diverse groups um, at the meeting, it was very focused. So it wasn't a lot of um, the YU modern Orthodox crowd, and it wasn't a lot of Hasidic crowd. It was that big glob in the middle that everybody else is. Right. And and uh, they joined together with five members that are prominent in the group of people who are no longer Orthodox. So that means that they grew up from and no longer associate or affiliate or practice Orthodox Judaism. Um, some people call them off the derech or OTD. We don't like to use that term. It's a little bit of an odd, somewhat condescending, difficult term to use. It really is, so, isn't it? Right. So we try not to use it, but that's really what it was. It was those. It was five people from that group, five people from the other group, and we got together. And as it as a group, we were all 
um, assigned different areas of the Jewish community life, and we were all given an opportunity to uh, criticize and constructively and provide possible solutions and fodder for discussion about each of these issues. And we got together for five and a half, six hours. And for some people, it was one of the most amazing experiences of their entire life. Five and a half or six hours. Wow. Um, Are you able to identify some or all the people who are at the meeting? Sure. So the people at the meeting um, from the side of Orthodox Judaism, representing Mm -hmm. that side, we had uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein from the Wiesenthal Center and well-known writer for Cross Currents. Um, Mm -hmm. We had Rabbi uh, Ron Eisenman, who is Rabbi in Psaic, Shul Avaz Yisrael. Um, we have my father, Rabbi Aaron Fink, who's principal dean of Ateras Beis Yaakov and Muncie, also writes a column for the Ated and the Chinuch Roundtable. Mm-hmm. And we had Rabbi Avi Shafrin, who everyone knows as the uh, member, uh, he's a representative of Gretas Yisrael for all the um, PR issues that they sometimes are dealing with. Right. And we also had Avital Chizik, who is a well-known young woman Orthodox writer who has uh, really stirred the pot and provoked many, many people with a lot of very interesting things that she has to say. And that was kind of that side of the equation. I was a moderator, so I did not really uh, participate on either side. Right. And from the no longer Orthodox Jewish community, um, we had four people that were okay being identified and a fifth person who's not. Okay. So, and the, and, the, and the four people that were okay being identified, uh, we had a young man named Ushi Katz. Um, we had a young woman named Frida Wiesel. I had Adina Cadden and Leah Vincent, who's probably the most well-known group, well-known from the group. I and interviewed fifth, her. She was on this show. There you go. I should be listening more often. You should. And I will. <laughs> and we had a fifth person who was a young man living in the Orthodox Jewish community um, and appears to be a from person to everybody on the outside, but mm. is going through a lot of inner struggles about what he actually believes and considers himself to be no longer a believing, practicing Orthodox Jew, but nobody really knows. Right. And he was okay with appearing even at, I mean, everybody agreed to basically keep his secret, I assume. Right. So we had a lot of confidentiality. The group was not mentioned in public at all. And mm-hmm. so we actually agreed at the meeting afterwards what could be presented publicly after we had discussed it. So he was uh, very, very confident that I would, I have guaranteed him, you know, right. confidentiality. A lot of the people here were um, people that I know well, and they know me and we trust each other. Right. So there was a there was a trust there that was okay, and uh, even now there are still some trust issues between some of the people in the group. But we're working <laughs> those out, trying to iron them out, and we're looking forward to um to, to continuing this uh this what, the, everything we started on Sunday. Right now, when I read about this, I read uh, I actually read Frida Wiesel's account first on her uh, I guess it's her blog, Ave Cartoons, Doodles, and Other Missives, and she drew a cartoon about this, I believe, right? And uh, actually, I don't know if she drew that. I'm not sure. But she, she wrote. She did. Oh, she did draw it. Right. Yeah. She did draw that. And uh, and she wrote a a really, frankly, disturbing account. Disturbing not because of the meeting, but because of, uh, and we'll get to this a little bit later, I hope. But uh, she wrote about her experiences in trying to leave, I guess, a Hasidic community and become modern Orthodox. And she, she was turned away, essentially, which was, was very disturbing. Um, but the the other things that struck me, first of all, Avital uh, Shizik being accused and uh, be, being included in this group, I thought was fascinating. Uh, she's a fascinating uh, and very talented writer, um, but she's definitely not a Haredi rabbi. And uh, and frankly, when I saw that you had succeeded in getting Avi Shafrin to be there, my jaw dropped. 
Avi. Yeah, I mean, I, I know Avi, and I, I like him and respect him, but he's he's certainly far to the right on many issues, and and people find his opinions uh, sometimes very intolerant, uh, which he alluded to in I, I think in either your your piece or uh, or uh, Frida's piece. Uh, he was quoted as alluding to the fact that, you know, somebody who said, oh, yeah, I know you're writing. And he said, you're still talking to me. <laughs> so uh, which which sounds just like him. He's he's like that. He's a nice person. Um, but but the fact that you got him to participate in this somehow actually really made my jaw drop. How, how did you get all these people together? It wasn't easy. It took a lot of time and effort and energy. But the truth is that people are mistaken when they think that even the most right wing or intolerantly seeming person or people are not interested in this. They really are. It's, it's, it's projection. We actually think that because they write certain things or they have certain beliefs, they are unwilling to have a conversation with people who disagree with them. That's not really true. And Rabbi Shaffer would be the first person that when I called him, he was, not, he was probably the most excited person about this when I spoke to him. Everybody else was just like, oh, that sounds interesting. He was chomping at the bit to get to this meeting. This really? was something that he wanted to participate in badly. And I don't think he's an anomaly. I think that among the people that I think that others view him as part of, he's not the only one. There are a lot of people out there that want to have an opportunity to do this. And the first step to inclusion and people expanding their ability to involve other people or be more tolerant is to have conversations like this. And the blame goes in both directions. Neither group has reached out to the other to make these connections, which is why I stepped in and tried to do it. But the truth is that in doing so, I found that it was almost like obvious to people. Of course, we should be doing this. Why haven't we done this until now? Right. Well, I, I don't know that many people necessarily realize that the, um, the this group of people who you said some people describe as the OTD community, and I've heard members of that community use that phrase perhaps in print. Um, I, I don't think they realize that they're a that they're that they're a group. <laughs> you know that that, that right. they're such an entity. Um, so that that may be. That may be well, part I, of it. I mean, not everybody, for instance, there are a lot of people who read your Facebook page and, and, and who are re reading, uh, you know, face, Facebook and other social media outlets in that genre. But there are many, many people who are not. Right. So, of course, um, when I say community or when we say community, I don't actually mean that there's a leader and there's, you know, consensus and anything like that. When uh -huh. we say community, we just mean that they have a loose affiliation with each other because of a shared experience. Right. And they all share that experience. It's like, you know, there are a lot of people who are children of survivors, right. Holocaust survivors. And even though they've never met before, they automatically have this kinship with each other because they've experienced so many similar things. And I find it's very similar with people who've left Orthodox Judaism. I have connections with so many of them because they've reached out to me or I've talked to them for whatever reason. Right. And even if they don't know each other, they have so many things that they share in common that when they actually do talk to each other for the first time or they meet each other, it's automatic friendship almost. So when I say community, I don't mean that they have a community that's like formal. They don't. There are some organizations that work together with people that have tried to create communities, sub-communities. But I just mean that if you put together two people that have very similar experiences, especially if they're a little traumatic, they have a relationship that's built into that relate to that experience. My guest is Rabbi Eliyahu Fink. He's the rabbi of the Shul on the Beach in Venice, California, which must be fantastic, by the way. <laughs> as well really as, is. as well as, it's as good as it sounds, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's great. As well as a uh, prolific and well-known blogger who blogs at finkorswim.com, finkorswim.com. Rabbi Fink, it it, uh, it occurs to me that um, it, it occurs to me that uh, something 
that people may not realize, and I, I'm, I'm aware of it now, but uh, it, it occurs to me that people may not realize that many people who left um, very, very strict Orthodox communities, you know, Haredi, you know, Hasidic communities, um, yeshivish communities, and, and, and became non-observant completely, sometimes antagonistically so, didn't always intend to go all the way in the other direction. Sometimes they tried to find a meeting place, you know, a, 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 uh, a medium, a happy medium, uh, within, a, soft within, a soft landing within modern orthodoxy. Um, it doesn't always go very well. Why is that? Well, it's something that I've tried to address and written about. There is a lot of bigotry amongst all groups of insular communities, there is bigotry. That's just normal. When people live amongst each other, mm -hmm. they have negative stereotypes about people that are from the outside. And in the non-Orthodox community, the outside is not really the non-Jewish or the non-observant world. It's usually the, that's the inside. I mean, those people are very involved in that world. It's usually the people that are in the insular communities that are the outside of the modern Orthodox community. Right. And inevitably that, that creates, at least for some people, uh, uh, perceived ideas and stereotypes about those people. And they're like almost like how some people think that it's okay to make fun of fat people, right? That's just like an acceptable thing to make fun of. Right. People make fun of, you know, Governor Christie because he's fat and it's okay because he's fat. And really it's not. It's offensive and it hurts him to say things like that. But it's a, almost an acceptable kind of bigotry. Whereas in the non-Orthodox community, I find that there's an almost acceptable bigotry towards those who come from more insular communities, particularly Hasidim. And when I see that, when I say that, I don't mean to say this as a criticism. I don't. Th I think it's almost inevitable, um, because if you don't know people like that, then you're going to make assumptions about them that are negative. That's just the normal human nature. So, if you're asking why that is, I start with that. I start with the idea that there is a little bit of bigotry towards those who come from the from the Hasidic community, and it's not even because of their Hasidishness. It's that because of the different cultural, social, and even religious proclivities that both groups have. And things that the non-Orthodox Jew may appreciate as part of their Jewish experience are so different from what the Hasidic Jew does that they almost share nothing in common except for the fact that they both claim to follow the same Shulchan Aruch. But other than that, there's very little that's shared, right. and that makes it hard to, 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 to create relationships. So that's the side of the, you know, the non-Orthodox group. That's one part of it. Um, another part of it is that what I was just alluding to is that the social structures are so different that you think as a Hasidic person that you'll be like, oh, it's the same, just less. You know, my, my friend, Elon Gold, the comedian, everyone sure. knows his great, you know, humor and stuff, a lot, of, a lot of great Jewish humor. He talks about how, you know, people say they're modern Orthodox. And he says, when, when I hear that, it sounds like the, the word modern means not so. And <laughs> like he says, you know, you go on a date and somebody... Um, you know, asks you, how was your date? Like, is she nice? Yeah, is she pretty? She's modern pretty. <laughs> you know, it, the, people have this idea that modern just means less. And therefore, if you're Hasidish, you think maybe, oh, they're modern Orthodox. That just means that the same as me, but less. And I can handle less. But the truth is, that's not true. And that's not, it's not like that at all. The modern Orthodox community is not necessarily less Orthodox. It's just different Orthodox. It's engaged Orthodox. It's less insular. It's involved in this secular world. Education is valued. Israel plays a prominent role. All these social parts of modern Orthodoxy that don't mean less than. So really you're dealing with trying to put one person from one social group into a different one that they really have no association with in advance. So it's actually really hard to imagine how it could work. In fact, I think what's best for them, and I've suggested this, is to create their own communities of modern Hasidic communities, where you are actually less than, 
Hasidic. In other words, whatever you, not so Hasidic, whatever you did before, you do the same, but a little bit less. And you have the same social and the same cultural things. Therefore, you're able to kind of create that world without having the insularity and the problems that these people had in the Hasidic community. Well, I mean, that sounds like a nice idea, but I mean, in, in, in point of fact, I mean, doesn't something like that have to just spring up organically? And, and, and is it, isn't it hard to imagine that a group of people who are basically disaffected with where they are now are suddenly going to, you know, become leaders of an entire new new way of being. It's, it's a little bit hard to imagine, but I, I guess maybe no. that would be a good solution. Not only is it hard to, you know, it is hard to imagine, but the truth is it's already happening. There is a modern Hasidic community in Muncie. People mm-hmm. know it as Ermont and oh, sure. Lipa Schmelzer lives there and he's one of their, you know, spiritual leaders and there's other people there that are rabbis and leaders. But the point is that there is such a community and it's growing and I think we should help them grow, but also as they grow, it will kind of make the relationship between both communities easier because you're not dealing with individuals, but you're dealing with a group and it just becomes less um, less vital that each person be integrated so deeply because there's always going to be this other community for them to create and connect with. Right. You know, it's, it's such a great irony about Ermont because 20 some odd years ago when the first shul was proposed to open in Ermont, there was a huge, huge amount of unpleasantness about it. A very famous Supreme Court case. Yeah. So uh, very interesting. Anyway, our guest is uh, our guest is Rabbi Eliyahu Fink, the rabbi of the Shul on the Beach in Venice, California. We're talking about a, uh, a meeting that he hosted, that he convened on Thursday, on Sunday rather, in Muncie, New York, uh, between a group of people who are no longer Orthodox and a group of people who are very Orthodox, and uh, among them four uh, four well-known rabbis uh, in the uh, in this area as well as uh, the well-known writer Avital Shizik who uh is uh was part of that uh, part of that gathering as well. How did you get Avital to be part of this and what made you think of her? We wanted to have um a a woman's voice in this conversation because a lot of the discussion was actually about women's issues and we felt it was important to have a first-hand account of what it's like to go through the women's experience in Orthodox Judaism, and Avital has made a very good, very good name for herself um, writing about these issues. And we had had conversations in the past about these issues, other things as well. And I was always very impressed. We were actually concerned, though, that she has a very, um, a very different demographic as far as her age than other people in the group. And I discussed it actually with some of the other rabbis who were coming and they were very excited to have her join the group. And in fact, I was more concerned about her age and her, and her lack of life's experiences than they were. And when they gave that kind of, um, approval and they were like, yes, let's ask her, um, with full, you know, full throated approval. I, uh, you know, it was easy for me. I called her up and I said, this is what we're doing. These rabbis would love you to join it. And she was uh, an easy sell. As soon as she heard about it, she said, this would be very interesting and very exciting and hopefully very helpful. And it was not, it was, it was my easiest uh, sell of, of the 10, to be honest. <laughs> well, maybe my, maybe my father, I think between the two of them, they were the <laughs> easiest two. Well, it's a very interesting choice. I'm a big fan of Avital's and, uh, and uh, she is, for those who don't know her, she's a, uh, within the last couple of years, recent graduate of Stern College for Women at Yeshiva University. Uh, she was honored at the uh, YU dinner, the Hanukkah dinner a couple of years ago, as one of the points of light 
that uh, that they name each year at that event. And uh, she is the winner, was the winner as a 21-year-old college student of three, four, maybe even five different writing awards. Uh, she is uh, extremely talented. So uh, that was a good choice. Um, Rabbi, she was a hit, too, I should add. She was a hit. People thought that what she had to contribute to the conversation was great, and also that she was able to form these relationships with the people who had left. She doesn't have any friends like that, and it, it, as far as from the more yeshivish community established and living in their 30s. So it was it was great all around. Very interesting. Um, another participant was uh, Rabbi uh, Ron Yitzchak Eisenman, who uh, has has distinguished himself for uh, some of the uh, principled and courageous stands within his community uh, that he's taken in the past in issues like abuse and things like that. And he uh, he wrote a uh, in, in a, I guess, a briefing to his to his congregants at Heshul and Passaic. Um, he wrote about this meeting and uh, he uh, he asked, why are we all so nervous, fearful and defensive about speaking to anyone who is one iota different than us? And he mentioned uh, his his father's family. Uh, who uh, went to Israel in the early 1800s as followers of the Vilna Gon. And he described how, you know, some 200 years later, there are 20,000 of that, of that ancestor's descendants, and a lot of them are, most of them are in Israel. He writes, many are still observant, many are not. However, they're all family. And he described the extent to which they all, they all get along and, and, and respect each other. Um, what were some moments like that, or were there moments like that at the meeting? You know, it's funny because, like I said earlier, people think that people don't want to talk. People think that people are skeptical or not interested in having this conversation. And the people that came to this were skeptical that the other side wanted to talk. Like, I heard from both sides. Like, what do they want to hear from me? What, what, what do they care what I say? Right. And when they actually saw that they were there, all those fears and all those skeptical thoughts and all the cynicism was gone. It was like, wait, we're actually here. Right. And during the meeting, it was like friends talking. It was really comfortable. And the people that were all contributing, some were more silent, some were more active, but the actual conversation was natural and it flowed and it was exciting and it was fun. And it was the kind of thing that we would love to do again and again. And because it was so obvious to us how easy this could be, and yet, to so many people on the outside, like you're expressing, it's like, how did you get managed to pull these, these people together? How These people can't even talk to each other. Because there's such a gap between what actually happens and what people perceive and what people think should happen, we thought that it was best to kind of just start doing this in mass and do this in as many places as possible and bring this conversation to each local community and have members of that local community participate. And it will start to become obvious, like Rabbi has been saying, that we are all family and we all just talk to each other and that's okay. And if we can do that, that would be the easiest way of really bringing about simple social change. Forget about the issues that were discussed and the simple and the and the complex answers and, and solutions to those difficult questions. Right. Just the simple thing of becoming a community of people that talk to each other again would be a huge success. And that's something that we think is a very easy and obtainable goal. I I think that's fantastic. <laughs> Personally, I, I did experience a little bit of what you're talking about, that initial reticence. So when I, I invited Leah Vincent, when her book came out recently, I invited her to come on this show. It's a couple of months ago, I guess. And she sat right here with me in the studio. And uh, but, but her initial, um, her, her initial you know, reaction when I contacted her, I mean, remember... As, remember my day job, and you know I'm not speaking for the OU right now, but I'm the chief communications officer of the OU, and I invited her to come to our studio in the OU headquarters, 
and uh, <laughs> she uh, she was very taken aback at first, but she she jumped at the opportunity. Um, as she put it, I'm getting a babysitter, <laughs> and uh, and she came here, and we had a great conversation. And so I, I I know what you're talking about, both the reticence and the fact that once you get past that, it's it's really a very natural conversation, even about uncomfortable topics. Right. And the funny thing is that it's like this like dichotomous way of looking at it, where some people are like, "Wow, you can't! I can't believe you did this! Like, no way! How did you get these people in the same room together?" Mm-hmm. And then the other people are like, "This is not a big deal. This isn't so normal. This is so obvious." And it, you have to kind of, you know, balance the two because yes, maybe for some people it's no big deal. And for some people it's really easy to do this. But for most people and the general population of people that I've come in contact with, this is a big deal. And we should talk about it like it's a big deal so that they realize that we can do big things, right? If you make everything into like no big deal, it's not an accomplishment, mm-hmm. then it reinforces this idea that nothing can change. But I don't want to, I, I don't want to make it sound like it should be a big deal. It shouldn't. It should be obvious that we talk to each other. But I also want to say that for a lot of people, it is a big deal. And the fact that we were able to get past it and accomplish great things in this meeting, and I mean that, there were actual solutions and healing and talk about things that actually matter. Because we were able to do that, we should we should be saying, look, it's hard. It's There's a lot of skepticism, both sides, but we can do it. And if we can do this, there are other things that we can do as well. And we should feel empowered to make that change. So many people feel powerless we are empowered to make change. We all are. Whether you're a rabbi, whether you're a rabbi in the most Haredi community, a rabbi on a beach, whether you're a, a citizen, a regular congregant of a shul, or a person who goes to the very, 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 very big shul and he's one of the, he's the board of directors, or whether a person is involved in the organizations like the Agud or the Y or the, or, or Yeshiva University or, or, or the Orthodox Union, whatever a person's involvement is, even if they're not involved at all, even if they're a person that just does their thing, they have their kogel on Shabbos and they have their chalent on Shabbos day and that's it. Right. Or you even left the community. You're a person who used to leave the, live in the community, but you have friends and you have family there. And everybody has power. We all have power. And we have to believe that we can make change by just taking sometimes a little, little bit of a step more than we thought we could take and engage people. Things will happen. It's happening already and will continue to happen. Nicely said. Thank you very much. My guest is Rabbi Eliyahu Fink, the rabbi of the shul on the beach. You can read more of his thoughts. He blogs a lot at finkorswim.com. And if you reach out to him on Facebook and you uh, ask nicely, he might even uh, accept your friend request, right? Of course. Uh, Facebook is uh, really, it's, a, it's an amazing way of communicating with people in the modern time. I actually had a funny correspondence with somebody. I, he he text, sent me a Facebook message and I answered him pretty quickly. And mm-hmm. he said, how do you have time for all your correspondence, regular correspondence and Facebook? <laughs> and I said, Facebook is regular correspondence. Exactly. Right. Some people look at it like it's this external thing. No, for me, that's part of being a rabbi. It's communicating with people whether it's in person at a coffee shop, whether it's on the radio at the stunt show, whether it's through writing, there's a million ways to communicate with people. And Facebook is just another way of communicating with people. Rabbi Eliyahu Fink, always a pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to a continued conversation. That was Rabbi Eliyahu Fink. He is the uh, the rabbi of the Shul on the Beach in Venice, California, and again, a blogger at finkorswim.com. And uh, always interesting to talk to him. And you're listening to The Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Ferdig. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us on this Thursday, the 15th of May, the 15th of ER, every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. You can hear The Stunt Show, brought to you by a rotating cast of characters, including Mark Zomick, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, and Daniel Gordon. My name again, Mayor Ferdig. And our next guest is somebody who is involved in something that becomes very popular in the Orthodox community around this time of year. And his name is Mike Boxer. He's the producer and director of 613. Mike, 
thanks for uh, coming on the stunt show. That's my pleasure, Mayor. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. I should tell you, I should tell everybody that uh, if they want to catch uh, 613, one great opportunity will be to make sure they are uh, watching on June 1st in the Celebrate Israel Parade as the OU float comes by, uh, probably sometime in the 11:30 to 12 or 11:30 to 12:30 slot, and. Uh, 613 will be performing live on the OU float, which we're very excited about here, Mike. Um, you are responsible not just as the producer and director of 613, but people see your name on lots and lots of Jewish a cappella albums. How, how have you become uh, so ubiquitous in that, uh, with so many great groups in that regard? Uh, sometimes you find a niche um, and... Uh Sometimes you can take the the guy out of the acapella, but you can't take the acapella out of the guy. Yeah, I, I got my start with this um, way back in college. Um, uh, time period will be left uh, undiscussed. Um, <laughs> but uh, a, a guy that I became friends with, his name is Dave Ross, who's also very active in the uh, in the, the Jewish music community. Runs Sheer Soul. Um, oh, does sure. a lot of orchestra work. Uh, so he found out that I have something called perfect pitch and then I played all these instruments and I did arrangements and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And he said, you have to join my acapella group. And I said, but I don't sing. He said, it doesn't matter. As long as you can sing in tune, you know, don't worry about it. As long as you can hold some pitch, do some arrangements. So that was kind of where I cut my teeth. And, um, it was really my first, uh, foray into, um, combining, you know, the spirituality um, and Judaism aspect of, mm-hmm. of something else that I really, really love, which was music. And I just thought that was fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, Binghamton is very heavily Jewish, but, um, you know, that's really one of the only, if not the only, um, you know, Jewish artistic uh, outlet that's out there. So it was really great. Um, I made it my own. Um, I got really involved with it. Um, we accomplished a whole lot. Um Including uh, the production of several CDs. Um, right. What's and, the group uh, called? The group is called Kaskeset, if I didn't mention that. Um, and they're they're still going strong to this day. They're coming up on about 20 years in existence. Really? Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, been a while. The community has really grown and really been around for the while. And uh, Kaskeset was one of the first uh, the first ones out there. Um, and they're still producing CDs. And in fact, uh, they just came out with an EP where you know uh, I did production for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes when you really love something and, and or are good at it, word gets around. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I've been doing things for the Binghamton Crosbys, which was another group I was up there. Uh, I was in up there. Um, and then, uh, you know, word got around to Tease Moret from Queens College. And, you know, they wanted me to produce a CD. Um, and then there was this young, eager group of guys over at Yeshiva University. Um <laughs> Who said, "Hey, we're starting this this acapella group. Can you come? Can you come direct it? Can you be, uh, you know, like Daniel Henkin is at Tizmora?" And I said, "You guys don't need me to do that. You can run it yourselves." And um, my my uh, you know my selflessness was repaid a couple of years later, where they said, "Hey, since we didn't pay you, now we have this money to create this album. Will you help us with that?" And so, right, you know, I did arrangements and production for them. And, and um, you're referring to the Maccabees. I am referring to the the fame, world famous Maccabees. Right. Um, so we we I could say I knew them when. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you know, of course, there's there's six thirteen, which is not a you know a college um, outlet. It's kind of the the professional version of the college uh, scene. But um, you know, acapella has exploded, and uh, 
in, in popularity, both in the secular world and the Jewish world, and with it has exploded my workload. And I'm very fortunate to get calls from a lot of different groups saying, uh, you know, can you work with us, whether it's an arrangement or, you know, production of their albums. Right. That's great. And I'd like to talk to some more about that, about the, the intersection of Jewish and uh, secular college a cappella. First, why don't we hear something from Kas Keset? What's this called and why did you choose it? Um, so this one is a, is a great example of uh, one of our my you know my more successful tracks, um, as well as it's got a great story behind it. Um, it's uh, it's an Idan Reichel song mm-hmm. um, called Mima Makim. It's it's gorgeous. It's a it's a love song. It you know references the uh, um, you know the liturgical reference of of uh, from out of the depths. And um, my wife and I um, had been dating a long time. We were engaged, and we still didn't have. Um, a song, you know, like a, mm-hmm. like a song that's ours as a couple. And, um, I had just been doing, you know, Kaskes had come to me and said, Hey, would you arrange this song by Idan Reichel? And I listened to it and I was like, wow, this is really great. Um, and, uh, she and I were on our way up to Binghamton to see the kids perform, you know, uh, having been post-collegiate life. And, um, so she says, so what's the song that you did for, for Kaskes that they're going to do tonight? And I played it for her and she's listening to it and going, Oh my God, that's an amazing song. Play it again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a three and a half hour drive. So, uh, we played it, what, I don't know, uh, 30 <laughs> times. So when my wife loves something, she really loves something. She's like, this is absolutely gorgeous. And that's when we found our song, you know, so kind of apropos back through that generation, um, you know, back where it all started in Binghamton. Um, you know, we found our song and, um, I just happened to, leverage as they say that arrangement um a few months a few months later um i guess we weren't engaged yet but right. when i proposed to her i got a bunch of friends together some of whom already knew the arrangement because they had done it in cascasa and i sang that song to her um definitely messed up at least 70 percent of the words um <laughs> but uh you know that was our engagement moment and it was beautiful and uh you know it all came full circle at that moment so now i um, now i understand why when i asked you to pick two of your favorite songs and send them to me that is one of them right so, uh, we'll play that and, right and yeah, and a year later, it won a Contemporary Acapella Recording Award, oh. um, only the second Jewish song to uh, ever win the award and that's in at that point. That's fantastic. My guest is Mike Boxer. He's the producer and director of 613 and, a, uh, I guess, a consultant, a creative uh, contributor to so many other albums. And this is one of his favorite songs on The Stunt Show. Shabbat shalom. 
That is Mi Mama Kim from Kaskeset, an, a, an a cappella group on the college campus in Binghamton. You're listening to The Stunt Show. My name is Mayor Furtick. Thanks for, start, thanks for uh, spending some time on this Thursday, the uh, 15th of 
May, the 15th day of ER. My guest is Mike Boxer, and uh, Mike, that's a beautiful song. And uh, we've got a couple of minutes left in this edition of The Stunt Show. Um, I was wondering um, where uh, where Jewish a cappella on campuses fits into the general uh, life of college a cappella. I'm wondering about, uh, about wondering where Bitachon fits into this also. They, they weren't a college group, were they? Um, no, they were not. They were a professional group. Um, I know a couple of them were alums of uh, maybe some secular groups. Um, but they, they, as far as I know, really predated the whole craze. Um, mm-hmm. And it took the, co- the collegiate world a long time to catch up with them. Right. Um, but I, I think it was Pizmon definitely takes the claim as, you know, the first collegiate group. Um, they were doing stuff that may have even been, you know, the, the early 90s. Um, and I think it was still a few years after that before anybody really else joined the party. And, um, you know, about a, almost a decade later, um, you know, when I joined the scene and we were coming down to Columbia for the festival that they would always have that celebrates those groups, um, you know, there were maybe, I think, nationwide there might have been 15 or 20. Right. Um, and historically, being an underserved interest, the Jewish group was always kind of the neglected stepchild of the a cappella community. You know, um, the, the, the audition pool was always smaller because, you know, there are fewer people who want to do exclusively Jewish music. There are right. few, fewer people who have that connection. You know, uh, college campuses are, you know, are not yeshivot. They're, uh, you know, all walks of life. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as acapella improved and as certain groups, you know, like Kaskes and then like Tizmore, it made their mark and became something formidable. You had people who weren't even Jewish who wanted to be in these groups. Um, you know, it just follows the, the contour of their success. Um, and then, you know, another decade comes by and you have Pitch Perfect and you have the sing-off and everybody wants to do this and there's no shortage and that's where the, just the explosion just happened. My, and uh, we're still enjoying it now. Fantastic. We're about out of time. We're going to go out to the uh, sounds of the Maccabees with Book of Good Life, the second song you chose for us today. And uh, Mike Boxer, uh, thank you very much for spending a couple of minutes with us. Too short, but uh, we're looking forward to seeing you and hearing you on the OU Float and the Celebrate Israel Parade on June 1st. Mike, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Let's uh, hear the Maccabees. And my name is Mayor Fertig. This is The Stunt Show. Till next time, everybody. Thanks a lot.